Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Hello! And this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we are talking about Three Hearts and Three Lions. And Three Hearts and Three Lions is definitely an old nerd creation, as opposed to a new one. And it is also a 1961 fantasy novel written by Paul Anderson. It follows the journey of Holger Carlson, a cheese Danish man. <laughs> Sorry. A Danish man in the 1940s who was inexplicably transported to a medieval fantasy world based on Carolingian France. Holger finds himself with a war horse, a suit of armor, and a sword, and must make his way through this world, unraveling the secrets of his origins as he goes. This book is listed as one of the big influences on Gary Gygax, who is the creator of Dungeons and & Dragons, and this book has influenced Dungeons & Dragons over the years. And we are pairing Three Hearts and Three Lines with Dungeons & Dragons, which will be coming out in two weeks. Yes! Woo! Lita. So, Kyle, you're doing the history segment of this podcast. What are you talking about? I'm going to talk a little bit about the Carolingian cycle and the French matters and a little bit about the British matters and a little bit about the Rome matters. Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to talk about Paul Anderson, and I'm also going to talk about fantasy writing in the 60s and what Ooh. the fantasy landscape looked like. Ooh. Yeah. So, Kyle, take it away. Now, for Three Hearts and Three Lions, I'm going to take us back to one of our favorite topics in the world. Drum roll, favorite topics. Ooh. Foundational fantasy works. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's Claire, true, it is. One of our favorite is, it topics. It totally is. Claire and I love talking the deep roots of the modern fantasy genre, which we love. And that often means talking about Tolkien and Beowulf and European mythologies. And amongst those European mythologies, the King Arthur stories often come up as a cornerstone work that would influence modern Western fantasy. But for Three Hearts and Three Lions, it is not the King Arthur mythos that leaves the greatest imprint on the text. It is a different king, one just as legendary as King Arthur, but 100 times more real. <laughs> and that king is Carlos Magnus, also known, because I had to type this name out a bunch of times, and this is how I said it in my head, Charlie Magni, also known as Charlemagne. <laughs> Depending whose head you're in. <laughs> exactly. So who exactly was Charlemagne, and why haven't I really heard of him as a foundational fantasy character? Well, let's get down to it. I'm so excited, Kyle. If I could make noise while you were recording, I'd be rubbing my hands together. <laughs> Sit on those hands, Claire. Now, in medieval Europe, there were three great topics of stories, kind of overarching topics that, that the stories would be told about. And this is medieval Europe. And these were the matter of Rome, the matter of Britain, and the matter of France. What is the matter? Now, the matter, it's a broad overarching term used to describe the body of literature and legendary stories associated with the history of said countries or said regions. And the word the mat, like the matters is what they're referred to often. Um, and that word was coined by the 12th century French poet Jean Baudel when he wrote, There are but three literary cycles that no one should be without. The matter of France, of Britain, and of Great Rome. So this was a French medieval poet, and he's saying that the stories that everyone needs to know are the stories about the foundation of Britain, 
the foundation of France, mm-hmm. and the foundation of Rome. Like, these are the things that we need to tell each other. Like, in the way that all American school children learn about the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the American yeah. Revolution. Yeah. And even, even like, uh, maybe something even more Americana-based than that. Mm. Like, what, what American books did you have to read in American lit as a kid? You know, like, To Kill a Mockingbird or right. things um, that helped Huckleberry kind of def- Finn. Huckleberry Finn. Things that helped kind of define the mythos and what it means to be... American, American Scarlet for us. Letter, yes. Scarlet Letter, or the, or you know, Babe, the Big Blue Ox, and Paul Bunyan. Mm-hmm. Now, the Matter of Rome was a, a sort of Christian medieval paint job on top of old Roman and Greek historical and legendary characters, because they wanted to talk about these great Roman figures. Like people knew who Caesar was, and people knew who Alexander the Great was. Now they were pagans, but they knew that they were quote great men. So they would kind of dress them up so they l- resembled more chivalrous knights. <laughs> and they acknowledged that they were pagan, but they, they bent them a little to, to mend or to, to meld with the medieval world a little better so that people could hear those stories and they wouldn't get, you know, crap. Turned off. They wouldn't get turned off by these pagans. You know, because they're – and you, you see that even in, in something like Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno was was a poem written in the Renaissance, but the matters of medieval Europe kind of branched into the Renaissance. They they expanded. But Dante wrote about hell, and there were people that should technically be in hell because they're pagans, but they're not because Dante loves their writing. You know, Virgil, <laughs> his I, favorite poet. It's like, Virgil's not in hell. I know he was a pagan, but he's not in hell. Right. I feel like it's imposing your society's values on people or characters that weren't a part of your society. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Any King Arthur movie or any medieval mm-hmm. movie that's come out recently with more modern values imposed on it, that's exactly what they were doing back Mulan. in the day. Mulan. Disney's new. Mulan. Disney's Mulan is a perfect example of it. So they would they would dress up, you know, Caesar and Alexander <laughs> the Great with these weird chivalric values, and they would even frame them almost as, as Christians, like Western versus Eastern. Alexander the Great wasn't fighting Muslims, but he was fighting, you know, in their words, Arabs and Persians, mm. which were kind of the, quote, enemies of, of medieval, of medieval Europe, Europe at that time. Yeah. Now, the matter of Britain, of course, concerned King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. And these stories were very focused on the individual deeds of the knights and their king. And they strayed often into mystical and magical realms and places. They also had a bit more of a romantic bent, and I don't mean that in a love and romance kind of way, though that was more heavily featured in King Arthur than it was in uh, the French stories and Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great's life. Um, But they were also filled with more drama, more betrayals of people you trusted. Yeah, a little. It was a little more CW um, than the others. Julius Caesar's a little more HBO. Julius Caesar's way more HBO. Now, the matter of France, which is also known as the Carolingian cycle, concerned Charlemagne and his 12 peers, or paladins, and the battles and adventures that they had. Um, And these were, in the beginning at least, a lot more geared towards fighting and Mm. battles and and armies. Less so, or I mean more so than King Arthur. And King Arthur's stories are more about the individual knight going off and right. fighting a dragon, fighting a giant, fighting the Black Knight, you know, by themselves. The the matter of France, in the beginning at least, was more about Charlemagne and his his best fighters, his best knights, taking their armies and fighting back the Saracens or the Moors in Spain. Um, 
And the type of lyrical poems and songs that made up the Carolingian cycle were called chansons de geste. Um, and think of these as similar to the Norse sagas, such as Beowulf, just French. So these were, these were stories that were, you know, they were songs or poems, and you would tell them out loud. Right. You would, you would read oral them to stories. each other. They were oral stories. You'd perform them. You'd sing them. Um, and they were done for the people. They were done to entertain. Now, Charlemagne was an actual historical figure. He was the grandson of Charles Martel, or Charles the Hammer, and was famously crowned the first king of the Holy Roman Empire. And this is what I found really interesting. For a thousand years, even more, most of Western Europe's monarchs would claim descent from him. Mm. So every monarch in Western Europe for the last thousand years... They were they were claimed they were monarchs. They claimed they were royalty because they said, "Oh, we go back to Charlemagne. You know, Charlemagne's the first royalty." That doesn't surprise me because I feel like I've read stories or biographies of European kings where they did claim to, to be descendants from Charlemagne. That makes you. I legit. feel like I've read it before. Yeah. yeah. Now he is also called the father of Europe and is kind of the foundational figure of all of these medieval and European legends. Um, Charlemagne is the real life basis for King Arthur. King Arthur is not real. Oh wow! At all? Well, I knew that King Arthur was real. Even people will try and argue, like, oh, there's some evidence. There's virtually no evidence. The only evidence that exists of King Arthur being real is a fake history written by Geoffrey Monmouth, and it's there's no physical evidence to back up anything that he says. Now, the Norse would even record Charlemagne um, and his paladin's deed, deeds in a legitimate Norse saga in the 12th century called the Carlemagnus Saga. And the tales of Charlemagne and his paladins, specifically his most famous uh, paladin, Roland or Orlando, would be amongst the most popular stories of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Now, the earliest uh, story dates back to around 1050, 1150, And these are tales of chivalrous knights and battles against Muslim invaders, um, and they'd most often be recited as poems or sung in verse. One of the tales, the Song of Roland, is indisputably dates back to as early as 1086, and I think even earlier. And the early stories of Charlemagne are more historical fiction than they are fantasy. They're Yeah. They're these dramatized accounts of battles that probably did happen, most of them against Muslim invaders. And there's a bunch of battles that Charlemagne really historically had against non-Muslim invaders or non-Muslim people he was conquering. Right. And the stories just plug in like, actually, it was the Moors there. <laughs> At the, in the present, we're fighting the Moors. Yeah. So yeah. obviously Charlemagne was fighting the Moors. I mean, Charlemagne was fighting Moors and he was uh, he was having skirmishes with the Saracens. You know, their 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 borders were rubbing up against each other. But one of his more famous and more ruthless and bloody campaigns was actually in northern Europe, and it was against the Saxons, and it was his attempt to forcibly Christianize them. <laughs> and he was obviously successful. So as the Middle Ages grew and stories were told and retold, and the arts started to flourish from the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance, the stories of Charlemagne started to change from being purely about fighting Saracens and Moors, a.k.a. Muslims, and into more of the fairy stories that we would associate with the fantasy genre today. And a little bit more akin to those King Arthur tales of Lancelot going out and, and having a, an adventure by himself. And Galahad going out and having an adventure by himself. So Charlemagne's tales became more of single night quest yes. instead of 
all these knights going into battle. Yes, became more adventure stories than big battle stories. Right. And uh, they they got a little bit more magical. So you've heard of the fairy king Oberon, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. Made famous in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. The fairy king Oberon is first mentioned in one of the French chansons des gestes, one of those French tale stories about Huon of Bordeaux, who was a paladin of Charlemagne. Um, Oberon aids Huon on his quest to win a pardon from the emir of Babylon after killing the son of the emperor in self-defense. So, like, that's where Oberon the Fairy King comes from. He comes from the Carolingian cycle. Interesting. Yeah, it's super cool. And I also want to add that even though these stories often told of Christian knights fighting against, (laughs) this is one of my favorite things, quote, pagan Muslims, Especially the early <laughs> stories, they keep saying that the Muslims are pagan. It's like they weren't aware that they were also monotheistic. Right. Like they weren't aware that they also worshipped one god. They're like, ah, oh, it's the pagans. It's the pagans, <laughs> anything bad. Um, oftentimes the great Muslim warriors who were kind of the foils to Charlemagne's paladins were depicted as having honor and being really chivalrous in their dealings mm. and with their fights. And one of the most famous Muslim warriors... This guy named Firabray, who was this giant, and he was a, a foil often to Orlando slash Roland. They're the same character. And Huon eventually was getting so popular that stories started being written and told that, oh, actually, uh, Firabras, he's actually now he's a good guy. He converted to Christianity, <laughs> so he's on our side. And now he gets to go on adventures with, with Roland and with Huon all together. You know what that sounds like? <laughs> what? Comics. It sounds like comics. It totally does. It totally does. Wolverine is introduced as a villain to fight the Hulk. And then you love him so much. Actually, he's good. He's on our side. He's good. (laughs) Um, So the events of the stories and the actual historical figures that they refer to, they took place about 200 to 300 years before these songs started to become popular. Um, Charlemagne ruled the Frankish Empire, which was the majority of Western Europe and parts of Italy, from around 768 to 814, and he was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800 by the Pope. And what that did for him and why it makes him so important was that he was the first person since Rome that the Pope crowned and said, you are the leader of all of Christendom. Like, you you are the king, you are the emperor, and you rule over all the Christians. Like, you are the, the, the authority. That's why all these... Monarchs are trying to, you know, right. trace their legacy back to back to Charlemagne. So they too can be the Holy Emperor. Yeah, is it, that's the Holy Roman Emperor. He's the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, He's the first Holy is. Roman Emperor. Now he is mentioned often in Three Hearts and Three Lions, the book, though by different names. And the main character in Three Hearts and Three Lions, Holger Carlson, is named after one of the legendary peers or paladins of Charlemagne Ooh. from the Carolingian cycle. Oh my goodness! Yes. So the the paladin of Charlemagne is not Holger Carlson, but Holger Danska. Um, and he's not always listed as a paladin of Charlemagne. Some, some stories have him in there, some don't, but he's largely considered one. He is a fictional legendary character, we think, being the composite of a couple of different historical figures from Charlemagne's time. One being Otcarius Francus, who was a Lombard, which is a northern Italian kingdom that actually fought against Charlemagne. And Ogier the Dane, a legendary Danish mm. hero from the Norse sagas. So it's funny because Octorius Francus fought against Charlemagne. And in the stories, Holger Danska fights against Charlemagne until Charlemagne captures him and Holger 
joins his team. He's so cool. Yeah, he's got to join his. And side. that does make sense for the story of three hearts and three lions. It does. It it fits very well into that. Um, now Holger Danska also carries a lot of his own similarities to both King Arthur and Lancelot. Holger, we just mentioned, was once an enemy of Charlemagne before being defeated by him and turning to serve him. Lancelot mm-hmm. is on King Arthur's side and then becomes an enemy of King Arthur and then comes back to the good side again. And also similar to King Arthur, Holger Danska is essentially unkillable. He's an unkillable hero. He comes back and he fights when his land is threatened, when his people is, are threatened. So Denmark, mm-hmm. some stories... Charlemagne's France, some stories, Christendom in general. People can't hear my nodding, yes. but I'm nodding. Yes. This makes total sense. Um, but once that fight's over, he goes back to sleep. And that's the thing that in, in The Legend of King Arthur is that King Arthur is on the island of Avalon and will return when Britain mm-hmm. needs him most. Now, Holger Danska was made more popular in the 1800s when Hans Christian Andersen wrote a a short story about him sleeping under the castle Cronenberg, which is also the castle from Shakespeare's Hamlet, waiting for the day when he must rise to fight for Denmark. Now, real briefly, because I I posed this question at the beginning of my segment, but I, I, I couldn't find a great answer on it. As to why the matter of France seemed to fall by the wayside while the matter of Britain and King Arthur lived on into great popularity, I'm not super sure. I think it must have something to do with language, and especially here in America, just with being a lot more influenced by England than we are by France. Right. Even though in the Revolution, France was our ally, we share a language and a, a heritage with England, with England and a history with yeah. England. And England's reach was so far yes. when yes. they were at their peak. Yes, So also in the 19th century, specifically in England, the stories of King Arthur enjoyed a very popular revival, Mm -hmm. which lived on into the 20th century. So poets like William Wordsworth, if you don't know him, he was a huge poet in the uh, 19th century, started writing Arthurian-inspired stories and analogs. And even Mark Twain helped popularize it in America with his book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which came out in 1889. And... At, at the time, in the medieval and renaissance eras, Charlemagne and King Arthur were both immensely, immensely popular. But the the French matters, the Carolingian cycle, never quite got that revival that, the, right. that King Arthur did. I think in a way it did. Really? I'm going to get into it in my segment. Subconsciously, yes. Okay. I want to ask some questions when we get to opinions, but uh, I'm excited to hear I'm, about Paul. I'm excited because I think our segments are going to tie together in a interesting way. Perfect. So I'm going to start off by talking about Paul Anderson, who wrote Three Hearts and Three Lines. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1926, lived briefly in Denmark as Oh, a kid. did he now? And he said he always wrote for his own amusement. He went to the University of Minnesota and got a degree in physics, which is a great degree to get if you're going to be writing science fiction. And it informed much of the science fiction he wrote later in life because he's a fantasy and science fiction writer. I watched this interview with him, I think, in the 80s or 90s. This was long after he went to university. He said then that he started writing professionally because he sent in a piece of writing and was surprised when it got published and thought, well, I guess I'll just keep following up with this, even with a science degree. Yeah. After graduation, he became a freelance writer. He had a short apprenticeship in pulp magazines. His first novel was Vault of Ages, written in 1950. He then released an average of two books a year till around 2000. Really? Yes. 
Whoa. Wrote around 90 books and hundreds of stories. This guy wrote a freaking library. Oh, he sure did. Uh, he was known for his wide range of tones and genres. He received seven Hugo Awards and three Nebulas uh, for his shorter short stories and was awarded the Grand Master Award from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers in America in 1997 for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. He won the John Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of the Year for Genesis in 2000, right at the end. And he was president of the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America for a while. Oh, that's a prestigious position. (laughs) If you're a (laughs) fantasy writer. (laughs) A little bit about his writing. Uh, He was very proud of his Danish heritage and drew a lot from the myths of Denmark in his fantasy. I see that. <laughs> also drew from Shakespearean works, the history of Europe, and the legends of the Middle Ages. He had a very strong belief in an individual's right to freedom, was known for bringing the science to fantasy, and he liked to clash genres. Uh, for example, in his book High Crusade, it's about aliens invading medieval England, <laughs> and I think the aliens would just wipe them out, especially if they had the technology to get to Earth, but I haven't read it. Not if King Arthur has anything to say about it, or, Claire. Yeah, that's true. Or Charlemagne. Or Charlemagne. <laughs> As an author, he felt it was his duty, uh, Paul Anderson, not King Arthur, <laughs> to entertain. Even if you have a worthy message, if it's not interesting, it won't get across. He also found out the hard way, he said, that it wasn't worth writing a story if he wasn't interested in what he was writing. So he had to make a point to not write anything that didn't personally interest him. And he said, no matter if he was writing fantasy or science fiction, his work always came back to here and now and his experience. And that was what he was really drawing from. I watched some videos of him, but they're all of him later in life. Uh, He just seemed like a really nice, nerdy man. (laughs) Nice nerdy man right. writing two science fiction fantasy books a year. Right. For and I couldn't. 50 years. He did always name Three Hearts and Three Lions as among his favorite books that he'd written. Okay. Uh, when asked towards the end of his life what were his favorite books, that yeah. always came up. But I couldn't really find anything about his writing process behind yeah. Three Hearts and Three Lions. It was fairly early in his writing career. Yeah, I think it started as a short story and then he expanded right. upon it. I think it started in the 50s as a yeah, short, short story. Yeah, exactly. So I also want to talk about the fantasy genre in the 60s and kind of the 50s when Paul Anderson was writing, also because we're pairing this episode with our D&D episode. So it's a little episode prep to go into the fantasy climate he was writing in. In the 1960s, there wasn't actually a fantasy genre. I think we've talked about this before. Pulp stories that were we would call fantasy now were classified as action-adventure, horror, and science fiction, and anything fantastical would fall into one of those categories. So, Girol of Joyerie, which we call a fantasy story now, that action was adventure, maybe action horror, adventure, horror stories. Writers like Tolkien that went through publishers. Um, with their books were defined as fiction and marketed the way you would market, say, a Hemingway novel. Whoa, mm-hmm. really? And other works like C.S. Lewis stories were defined as children's literature, even if they weren't originally meant to be. And the prevailing thought at the time was that stories with fantastic elements were meant for the kids. So what happened? Why do we have a fantasy genre? Why do we have a fantasy genre, Claire? 
a little series we never talk about called The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings! It was released in 1954, but it really started taking off in the 60s. Now, Lord of the Rings had first been published in Britain as prestige literature, but Donald Wolheim of Ace Books in the United States saw enough in common in it with the sword and sorcery genre that he thought it would be popular for people here who wanted more of that. Now, there were some copyright issues, some copyright lawsuits, some changing of American publishers, which I'm not going to go into in this episode, but Donald Wilhelm was right. Lord of the Rings was an explosion, a phenomenon, and it was not just a hit with the sword and sorcery fans. It was a hit with everyone. The counterculture at the time, the anti-Vietnam movement, was the perfect climate for these books. People loved them. It spoke to them. (laughs) Frodo for president was, you know, spray painted all over the place. Frodo Frodo Lives was something that was That's right. Gandalf for president, Frodo Lives. Frodo Lives. And I'm sure at some point we'll go into all of this later, but I just want to make sure that everyone understands how big Lord of the Rings was. Now, what was the impact of Lord of the Rings, you ask? It did draw some of its readers to the fantasy genre, but the fantasy genre didn't change right away. It, it couldn't. A- again, it's important to remember the scale of Tolkien's work and that it was one of the first of its kind, or at least the first of its kind, to receive that huge amount of attention. And remember, before this, most of what had been marketed towards audiences who had an interest in fantasy had been pulp stories, and this was a completely different thing. Um, there wasn't the fantasy genre, so you couldn't go to the library looking for similar books, and the internet wasn't around, so you couldn't connect with like-minded people on forums who might know more than you and recommend books to you. Yeah. So you have this new audience wanting to read more fantasy like Tolkien, um, but there wasn't really a lot of similar stories that publishers could reprint, and writers weren't writing these stories. Again, fantasy wasn't a genre. It wasn't prestigious. It, if anything, it was for kids, and it wasn't something you did to make a ton of cash. You know, weird, uh, weird magazine, weird tales weird was tales, not yeah. ever doing great. It was just barely keeping afloat <laughs> right. for most of its existence. Um, so after the Lord of the Rings explosion, demand became higher than what could be supplied. The publisher, Ballantine Books, that had eventually gotten the American rights to Lord of the Rings, recognized that there was an audience, because they were selling so much, that wanted more Tolkien-esque fantasy and not the pulpy sword and sorcery stories, and they tried to reach out to them. First, they released a series of mostly older fantasy titles. The books did well, and they were right, there was an audience for them, but Ballantine needed help to maintain their standards for the quality of titles they published, And they also needed help knowing what books to put out next because this wasn't a genre where there was a catalog of older books to go to, like I keep on mentioning. But I just think it's important to point out that you just couldn't, like, look up other fantasy books. Yeah, yeah, it was was much more of a process to find them. Yes. Now— In comes Lynn Carter. He had been writing sword and sorcery works, including some Conan in the mid-60s, and he suggested to Ballantyne that he write a book on Tolkien, which they agreed to. And in this book, there was a section called The Men Who Invented Fantasy, which discussed non-pulp fantasy before Tolkien. 
Valentine was so impressed by his knowledge of earlier fantasy and asked Lynn to be a consultant and recommend books to go on their new adult fantasy series, which started in 1969. He did, and between 1969 and 1974, Valentine published 66 titles. They reprinted novels that hadn't gotten attention over the years and some newer titles as well, new works as well, I should say. And what's especially significant about this is that for the first time, the tag on the book's spine said fantasy instead of science fiction. So even if it ended up in the science fiction sections of bookstores, the book was labeled as a fantasy. And because no one else was doing this, Valentine had a huge impact on fantasy as we know it today. Lynn Carter basically got to define a genre. And here are some of the guidelines he gave, and these are from various introductions he wrote for the books he picked. A fantasy world is a book or story where magic really works. In its purest form, the setting is completely made up by the author. It circles around the theme of quest, adventure, and war. And I feel like the fantasy that we read today covers yeah. that. Yeah. Almost all, that. all the time. Yeah. Beyond that, fantasy covers also changed. Instead of covers of strong men and knights with scantily clad women hanging on to them, it became serene shots of landscapes. And like a castle in the distance mm-hmm. or a, a city with a tower. Yes. By the end of the 1970s, there was a shift in publishing from reprinting old fantasy works to printing new fantasy works. Writers who had been shaped and influenced by Tolkien began to release their own pieces, a lot of times heavily based on his work. And fantasy was an established genre new writers could focus on. Yes. So now we move into our opinion segment. How do we think these two compare? We know that they compare well because this book is literally on a list that Gary Gygax, who was the creator of Dungeons and Dragons, he made a list of his influential works for creating the game. And this book is number one. Now, it's number one because it's alphabetical <laughs> order, but it is on there. And Paul Anderson. <laughs> Paul Anderson. It's because of Anderson, A. Eh? Why did we link them, them, Claire? Because it influenced the book. Said, said Gary Gygax. Yeah. And obviously it made sense to put them together because Gary Gygax said Said. so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we've covered what we normally do. (laughs) Yes. But one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about because I didn't get to in my segment because Charlemagne was too interesting not to go into a bit in the stories I loved was that a big theme in the book is law versus chaos. Humans, the knights, our, our hero Holger, they're all on the side of law, of Christianity, the elves and the fairy folk and the magical creatures, they're all on the side of chaos. And there is some back and forth. Some magical creatures are more towards law and some humans are more towards chaos. But that is a huge deal in Dungeons & Dragons. And it was also a huge deal in those stories, in the, the Carolingian cycle. Oh, yeah. Because the Saracens and the Moors, while they were sometimes the villains, they were still honorable and bound by codes. The real, like, bad, bad people in the Carolingian cycle stories, a lot of times, were magical in nature. Whoa. Didn't realize that. Yeah. It's funny because that's what I meant to say, though, when you were talking about how we don't relate to the French myths in the same way that we relate to the English or the Roman ones. But 
we do. Yeah. That the themes have come through just in not in quite as direct a way. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right. And just some of the things that occurred in the book, which were straight out of D and I thought was was really fascinating. Like spells, abilities the uh-huh. characters have in D and D are literally listed in mm-hmm. Three Hearts and Three Lions. They are. <laughs> Unseen Servant was one I, I underlined. Lay on Hands, which is a paladin mm-hmm. ability, was another one. And the paladin class is based off of this book and the Carolingian Cycles and Charlemagne's Paladins. Paladin is a class in Dungeons and Dragons. I also wanted to mention that one of the reasons we came to this book specifically, not just the list that uh, Gary Gygax made, was because of a YouTuber named Matt Colville who does Dungeons and, Dra- Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing related videos. And he talks about the history of D&D and he talks about how to be a dungeon master. But he talks about this book as the basis for the early Dungeons and Dragons alignment system, whether you're good or bad. Right, which is an important part of the game. Yeah. You pick if the character you're playing is good, neutral, or evil. Yeah. Except in the very beginning of Dungeons & Dragons, in the first edition, you didn't pick if your your character was good, neutral, or evil. You picked if they were law or they were chaos. No. Oh. Which is literally out of this what book. this does, right. And uh, I also wanted to mention something that he says in this video, which I thought was really interesting, that, and also kind of speaks to D&D of filling the shoes of a hero, you know, like when we play Dungeons and Dragons, we are playing to become that knight or become that sorceress. Become Holger. Become Holger. And in the book, Holger's from our world and becomes through, you know, no seemingly doing of his own, becomes this heroic character who always knows what to do. And um, Matt Colville mentions that when Paul Anderson was writing this, this was in a time where you still had to have a connection to the real world for your fantasy stories. This is before it had been realized that what Tolkien did could be done. Where right. you He know was what? writing this pre-Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he was writing this pre-Lord of the Rings, but not pre-Silmarillion or pre-Hobbit. Right. And, you know, that, oh, you don't have to necessarily have a connection to the real world. You can just make everything up. <laughs> you can make the whole world up mm-hmm. and the religion up and everything oh, that's is, a good is point. created. And yeah. prior to that, it's always this, like, fish-out-of-water story. You know, even going back to Mark Twain being a Connecticut right. Yankee. Narnia is fish-out-of-water. Narnia. It's, there's a, a gateway between our world and their world. and that's Portal fantasy. Portal fantasy. And that's more believable inherently in some ways, I think, was the idea. And real fast, I do want to go back to what I was saying at the after your segment, how these, you know, French— um, what's the word you used? The Carolingian cycle? The, the Carolingian cycle. The French matters. Matters was the word I was or looking matters for. Matters of France. Matters of France. How they do influence our fantasy today. And the way that I feel like Lynn Carter, when he was looking up earlier myths and defining fantasy as a genre in a way that it's still defined today, even if people don't know that it is, you know, the idea that it's centered around war. Yeah. That. Oh, that's true. That sounds like it's right out of the Carolinian, the Carolingian, yeah, Carolingian stories. And just when you were telling me what these stories were, you know, these great knights going into battle together to fight off evil, that so obviously influences our storytelling today, especially fantastical. Yeah. You know, whether or not directly it's directly doing it or yeah. not, the influence is there. 
One of the things I think is really cool about Charlemagne as well, which I didn't get to cram in there, but I think helps lend credence to like, he's kind of the father of a lot of things. He's the father of royalty in Europe. He's the father of the European mythos in a lot of ways. Um, he's the father of the European mythos in more ways than just being the root idea. He also was the person who made sure that all of the priests and monks could write and just had them start copying books about everything. So he's one of the reasons that there were books from the Dark Ages. He was the one who said, like, priests, monks, uh, people in the bureaucracy, you've got to learn how to write, and you need to just copy everything down and make copies, and that's what you're going to do all day. You're just going to scribe things. You're going to copy and copy and copy. And he's kind of the reason that, that we have written stories. The reason we have a fantasy genre. Genre, yeah. Is Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Which I thought was pretty interesting. I wanted to also ask you, Claire, and before we wrap up, if you had a, a favorite moment in Three Hearts and Three Lions. Um, I did enjoy the end of the book, which I'm not going to give away. Um, obviously, people have had years to read this book, but it's not well known. So if someone listens and decides they want to read it, which I do recommend, then I don't want to give that away. Um, Morgan Le Fay is in the book. And I did love the character of Morgan Le Fay. I thought she was by far the most interesting female character in it. And I feel like whenever she stepped in, yeah, I was really wanting to know what was going to happen, she's, and was almost rooting for her, even though she's a quote unquote bad guy. Yeah, she's also in the whole Gerdanska legends, like the old oh. French stories. She's really there. Um, I loved the Battle of Wits a lot. Oh. I loved, I loved, I love a good riddle off, and there's a riddle off in this. And I had a great time. I thought it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Which I do think was a tip of the hat to The Hobbit. Oh, I definitely. I, I know he was doing that in yeah. this book. Yeah, but I, I still thought it like it did. It still came off as kind of fresh and fun and like a good honorific sort of thing. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsripodcast.com where you can find links to all our social medias, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And I can be found on Twitter at Klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. And you can find our producer James at James Fowey, that's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R, on Twitter. You can learn more about Three Hearts and Three Lions on our Facebook page where we will be posting some of our research. We'll post it on Twitter as well. Our producer, who is lawful evil, is James Foey. I also think that he's kind of a middle-aged barbarian painted in our modern-day sort of uh, clothing so he can gel more with this world. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and she is just a barbarian. Just a Not even barbarian. hiding it. Yeah, we don't paint her in anything. <laughs> and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is eating a sandwich right now. Most likely. Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah.